Welcome to Mastermind FM. Before we get started, here's a word from our sponsors, Plesk. Plesk is more than just a control panel granting you full flexibility to customize, manage, secure, host, automate, and control your web projects as well as any underlying infrastructure. We simplify the lives of web professionals and give you star features like one-click staging, cloning, syncing, plus automated mass management of multiple WordPress instances on your server and more. Have it your way. Find out more on Plus.com. A word from our sponsors, Freemius. If you create and sell WordPress plugins or themes, you know that only coding features is not enough. You're going to have to securely accept payments, manage subscriptions, handle software licensing, collect European VAT, software updates, and the list goes on. Freemius handles all of those aspects in your business for you. When you sign up to sell through Freemius, they treat you like a true partner because they will only earn money when you earn money, which naturally serves as an incentive for them to help increase your sales. I highly recommend you head over to freemius.com mastermind and get a full month of fees waived when you start selling your WordPress plugins and themes through Freemius. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Mastermind FM. This week we're joined by Craig Williams and Anthony Presley, who are the new owners of Templatic. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, so, first of all, before we get into the whole acquisition of Templatic and so on, which we'll be discussing today, can you give us a bit of a background to who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Craig, you want to start? Yeah, I'll jump in. So I am, uh, for the last 20 years or so, I've been in B2B sales, uh, selling anything from packaging, consumer products, um, just about anything you can think of. And uh, recently, I would say about eight years ago, I went back to school, got an MBA from SMU and started looking into other sides of, you know, other sides of the business world other than just the sales and marketing side of it. Anthony and I have known each other for eh, probably 20 years now. And uh, we actually started, you know, we we're in the dorms and in college together when we met. And we actually, you know, looked at starting businesses then, uh, you know, some things, uh, things didn't necessarily always pan out, but, you know, Anthony was able to take some stuff and, and keep running with it. But, uh, but yeah, uh, we, I live in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. So middle of the middle of the state of Texas and Anthony's over in love it but we decided to get back together and start uh, start working again i'll let it anthony go ahead sure thanks for that just a little bit of background i'm in my day job i run about a hundred person engineering and uh, products team for a global provider of retail software and solutions and um, i've been involved with uh, startup ecosystems and accelerators uh, for roughly the last 15 years or so and um, personally launched five companies. I've done six mergers and acquisitions, working on a seventh right now, and um, love software and, and the startup ecosystem, frankly. Great. So you guys have been involved in acquisitions for quite a while before getting into WordPress. Yeah, lot, lots of acquisitions in service industry and um, software companies. Um, actually sold my previous company. So I did uh, was both on the buy side and the sell side of that with one of our partners. Uh, it was kind of an interesting deal. But 
yeah, not our, not our first rodeo. So considering your backgrounds, both of you, how did you end up getting into the WordPress space at all? Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. I wouldn't say that we looked for the WordPress space. I don't know that Craig had ever seen or, or done much with WordPress prior to this acquisition. I've used WordPress to run businesses and you know front-end websites since really WordPress 1 long time ago. And as the uh, themes and plugins evolved, uh, we were users of it or we'd build our own themes in the businesses I was in. It was not anything heavily involved like we are now, but uh, really we were looking for a good solid business that had happy users and had good themes that we thought we could kind of take to the next level. All right. In this case, with Templatic, what does acquisition as such mean and sort of what what have you purchased, what have you acquired, what haven't you acquired with them? Yeah. So basically this was a, you know, acquisition in this case is, is exactly, a, I mean, it's like you said, it's a, you know, we purchased the intellectual property, uh, the, you know, company name, the, the website domains, um, you know, any hardware that they had. I mean, that was really it as far as what the, you know, the assets that were involved. And then from there, you know, once we took everything over, we kept on, you know, the same team, but it was pretty much just a purchase of all assets. Uh, everything that they built, I mean, they had several, you know, they had several different websites when we were looking into it. There's a lot of due diligence that went into it. And, and so basically that's what it, what it rolled down to, but, you know, nothing, nothing extraordinary or, or different about it. Uh, I mean, it's just like any type of purchase you would make really at, at the end of the day, it was, uh, that, that part of it was actually pretty simple. All right. So Anthony, to follow up on that sort of, first of all, what does the template do and how did the acquisition actually come about in the first place? Yeah, I have gotten, for better or worse, ended up on a lot of uh, mailing lists with uh, all the various brokers out there. And there's six or eight of those guys I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, this one came across my desk. I thought the multiple they were asking was reasonable. And, um, you know, it looked like a nice, solid business. But the, the company Templatic produces themes and has for over a decade uh, themes for WordPress and plugins for WordPress. Uh, just last year, we, we dipped our toe into hosting and uh, specifically turned that into a little bit more of a SaaS model where we run our themes in a cloud environment and do all the hosting and management for the customer. You know, basically, rather than just being a theme provider, we've now got a SaaS solution uh, specific to our most popular theme, which is more of a directory theme. But we have about 100 themes and 50 plugins, and we sell those all over the world. And we, we thought it was kind of an interesting business because although the, the founder was in India and a lot of the teams in India the vast majority of the buyers are actually in the United States. So it's a little bit of an interesting business model with selling to people that really they're not around. All right. And why was the company sold in the first place? If you can share those details. Yeah, we, uh, we acquired the business uh, February 1 of this year. So we've now had it for about three months and got a, a quarter under our belt, as we might say. Well, was there a specific reason why the company was sold or was that not sort of of interest to you guys? Oh, no, I think it, it's of interest because I think it happens to a lot of founders. You know, I think the founder, Bavesh, very smart guy, had put a lot into building the business. And I think his interest waned. 
you know, he got interested in, in another project he was working on. He got interested in a, you know, whatever he was working on these other side projects that he's got. And um, the bottom line with Bavesh and how he built this company was that 10 years ago, he had this nice, uh, nice theme company. And it was really when the uh, market was young and there weren't themes all over the place. You've got very strong themes out there now. And I think he invested a lot of that money in other projects and, and got uh, where he had multiple projects going on. And, and like many founders that do that, then the other projects, uh, you end up with having a kind of a my baby. And one yeah. of those is more important than the others. And I think he realized that and recognized that and wanted to focus on his real estate investing and focus on his other projects, which include like a I think he's got a Shopify app and he's got a few other things that uh, that were more interesting to him. And he decided to take his his uh, leveraged equity in the company and in the business and, and sell it, which I think is a fantastic thing to do. All right. And for you guys, what were the sort of main goals of actually acquiring this particular company and actually going into the WordPress space? So really, we were looking for a, a good just a, a good solid company with, uh, you know, in this case, we were looking for lots of traffic, lots of SEO strength, uh, a strong team. I, again, we, I don't know that we were really interested in having to be in the WordPress space. It just happens to be in the WordPress space. And it's something I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with. And uh, I think Craig is learning it as fast as he can. All right. Okay. Maybe if we can go into a bit of more detail of what the actual acquisition includes. So for those listeners out there who might be interested in acquiring some sort of business, be it a small one, be it something as big as Templatic. Could you go into a bit more detail on what the process looks like for the person making the acquisition? Sure. Happy to do that. Craig, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure. I'll uh, jump in. So, you know, for something like this, when you're looking to make, I think when you're looking to make any acquisition, definitely got to be prepared for you know, road bumps and, and silence and, you know, hurry up and waits and, and things like that. You know, for this one in particular, this was, I mean, this, you, you definitely also have to be patient because I mean, this thing took, I think we started working on the actual acquisition maybe last June, July is when we first uh, started looking into it, you know, started off with you know just a conference call with Bavesh and, and kind of and the broker and kind of going through to see what the company actually was. Uh, then there was a lot of, you know, due diligence on our part, as much as you want to just get it over with and get in there and take over. Uh, you definitely have to make sure that the value is there. So, you know, it, it takes time. I think that's the biggest, the biggest takeaway is that it's, it's not something that's going to happen in 30 days. Uh, even though when you get started, everybody thinks it is going to happen in 30 days. Uh, I don't think that that's the case. In, in a lot of these, a lot of these types of acquisitions, you know, like I said, we started in June, worked through it in July, August. Uh, you know, we would start having reservations. They would start having reservations. Either way, they've obviously also have, you know, had other interested parties that were inquiring about it as well. And then there's the structure of the deal, right? And you can you can run into a million roadblocks there on um, how you're going to structure the contract and what you need to add and what your takeaways need to be. The negotiation process probably took a good two, three months. Um, and then even after everything was negotiated and agreed upon, it 
probably took us another 60 or 90 days just to get through that portion of it and get everything signed and, and turned over. And then the other part of it is once you do that, right, you've got the initial discovery part, you've got the, the due diligence part, then you've got that uh, negotiation part, and then you've got the, then you finally sign everything over and you think, okay, well, you're done. And that's not necessarily the case either. There's a lot of things that you do in transferring assets that takes another you know, 30, 45 days and, and sometimes even longer than that. So uh, I would say definitely for, for people that are, are looking to purchase and acquire a, a business, you know, expect the unexpected, expect things to, to happen that you, you know, that you didn't see right away. Um, you're definitely going to uncover things, be it good, be it, you know, some good, some bad that you weren't, you know, that you didn't notice right at the, right at the very beginning when you're going through the deal and looking at, uh, looking at a, all the assets and everything that the company entails. Um, there's going to be other stuff that comes up. So I think that's one good takeaway. Uh, then the other thing is just the patience, you know, of, of not just walking away from it, um, because you haven't heard from somebody in 30 days, uh, especially of a, an acquisition like this, when you're talking with people that are on the other side of the world, right? So that can pose a challenge. Um, you know, the internet definitely makes the, the world a smaller place, but uh, time zones are still <laughs> are still a factor. And, uh, you know, so you've got, you end up having a lot of calls in the middle of the night um, on both sides uh, just to try to accommodate the other. So it's a, it's definitely, it's definitely a challenging, um, a challenging thing, but very exciting as well. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was a fun process to go through the acquisition and then very rewarding when it's all finally said and done. And we've kind of, like Anthony said, we've been running a few months now, still uncovering a few things and still working through and, and learning, learning parts of the business. So there's, there's definitely never a dull moment in that aspect, which is, which is exciting for both of us. Anything you want to add anything there? Anything? Yeah, I think that, I think that was a, a good overview. Yeah, I think uh, speaking of patience, sort of, it also comes down to the actual person selling. I mean, it's not going to be an easy decision when it's something which you've built up over God knows so many years. And like I said earlier, it's sort of your baby. So it's not going to be something that you're going to answer within a week and decide, all right, let's just go ahead and do this. Of course. So patience comes into play there. Yep, of course. And to kind of simplify the process a little bit and use an analogy, to, it's, it's kind of like you, my wife, we, we traded her car in not too long ago and we, we take it there and, you know, they offer you not very much money. This thing you think, man, this is a really nice car. We've done all this service and we've kept it up and they're just not going to give us any, this, this is, no, we're not going to accept that. And then you go and you realize, well, wait a minute, this is really all that it's worth. It just, it seems like it's worth a lot, worth a lot more to me. I, uh, I took care of it, but um, so it's similar to a situation like that, only obviously on a lot larger scale and, um, and there's a lot more emotion can be a lot more emotion involved. Uh, like you said, with it being their, uh, their baby, so to speak. All right. And you mentioned the sort of 30, 45 days after you've actually made the agreement. There's a lot of things happening during that time. What, in this case, for example, what were the initial steps that you took once the actual acquisition was completed with regards to obviously getting familiar with the team? Uh, familiar with the products, familiar with the business, the way things run, your customers, and so on. There's obviously time to actually get to know the team. I'm assuming you guys kept the same team, right? Yep, yep. So, so yeah, once we completed the acquisition, it was actually, we probably actually gave, I would say, I think we gave two weeks uh, for kind of a, a conversion of, okay, you know, the, the acquisition's complete, everything's been funded. 
you know, Bavesh wanted to wait to tell the employees until it happened. So we, you know, we said no problem. We, we, we allowed that to happen. And, and after about a week or a few days of transitioning assets, we introduced ourselves to the company, you know, let all of the employees know that we would be, be taking over. Uh, Bavesh is, you know, was kind enough to stay on um, for a period of time as, as kind of a, a consultant with us um, to kind of through the transition. Uh, plus, it helps he's, you know, there in the office with everyone and us being, you know, in the, in the States and, and then being in India uh, does pose a, a bit of a challenge sometimes. So having him having him there is, is something that was that's been helpful. But what we've done initially, and I think what our plan has been is to, you know, we didn't want to make any changes right away. We definitely saw opportunities that we could change. And we see things that, you know, tweak here and there that could really help turn the company, you know, into another direction possibly and, and, uh, and start generating a lot more revenue. But we didn't want to come in and just give a complete culture shock to the team and, you know, upset the current workflow. They were doing some very good things that were working. Uh, so we don't want to upset and interrupt that. But at the same time, it's a delicate balance, right? Because there's also some things that we see as newcomers that, you know, maybe Pavesh was too close to at the time that, uh, that we would like to change. So, you know, the first 30 to 45 days is just more of an observation period to where, you know, we're communicating on a regular basis. We're asking questions. We're learning. Uh, there's still a lot of inner workings of the company. I mean, there's, you know, as Anthony said, over a hundred themes and plugins, and that's a lot of product uh, to, to, you know, learn everything about. There's that part of it too, where we're still learning some of the products. Uh, we're still learning kind of how the team works together. And so in that, in that period of time, that's what we're doing. And then after that, you know, you kind of start to move into, okay, we, we understand how these people work. We're starting to understand some personalities. Uh, then we can kind of start dividing up some new tasks, looking at, you know, making some changes. And so we've kind of been slow to make some changes. I think that the one thing that, that we want to do is make sure that we're making the right choices and really digging in and, and understanding that the, that the things that we do want to change are still the same things we want to change. You know, when we purchased the company to begin with, I think we've, you know, we set out first with a 30, 60, 90 day plan, reviewed it at the end of 30 days. We even made some, <laughs> made a few adjustments then, because uh, as I said, you know, you're going to learn a lot about what's going on within the company once you're actually in it and are able to start digging your heels in. So. Mm -hmm. Is the team all based in India right now? Yes. Yes. We're, we're going to probably keep it that way for, for the time being. Uh, no reason to make any changes at this time. We'll probably operate. I mean, Anthony, I'll let you take this one. We haven't really looked past, uh, you know, the first year. So I know that we're not doing anything with the team for the first year moving anybody. All right. I was wondering, sort of since leadership went from having someone in the office, someone being remote across the world, uh, has that impacted the employees in any way? Has it impacted the quality of work in any way? Or have, have things just continued thanks to uh, Bavesh being involved from day to day? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It, it actually um, worked out. You know, we, we spoke earlier a little bit about... Um, about when you make a decision to sell the company and um, and there's actually a lot of research on founders and how they view uh, their company as their baby and they have the same emotional attachment as they do to their children. Um, and actually, Bavesh did a great job 
teeing up uh, him leaving. And so he was not in the office on a day-to-day basis for quite some time. He was really running his other businesses. And uh, so the team had already acclimated to not having uh, leadership in the room. Uh, and so although we're, we're stateside, we, we make an effort to meet up with them uh, pretty regularly. Um, and we do have, we do have a, our sales um, team is actually in Serbia. And so uh, that's another time zone we get to contend with. Um, and then this summer we have, um, we have our first intern. We have an intern starting who's going to be working on sales and marketing and uh, a lot of SEO and, and link building and all the fun things you need to be doing on the marketing side. Um, and she will actually be stateside here in, uh, in Texas. All right, so you're becoming more of a remote team overall. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And actually, in in India, um, we have one one of our senior developers does not work in the office and and hasn't in four years. Um, and then one of our writers is um, she only comes into the office once a week. Uh, so our core team that works from an office, there's only three of them. And and uh, as Craig mentioned, we're we're thinking we'll keep that through the end of this year. I'm sorry, there's four in that office and thinking we'll keep that through the rest of this year. But uh, but we may change that and end up with a completely remote team, which will have all of the fun that uh, remote teams have sometimes. Yeah, it's a challenge in itself, but I think uh, you're already on your way there. So the benefits of having the founder not necessarily being in the office for quite a while, that probably prepared the team for what's to come. That would have helped. I think he did a good job in, in anticipating that transition mm-hmm. because that can be a shock for a lot of people. Yeah. And Anthony, continuing from the, the seller's perspective, if you had to take a look at an acquisition like this one, for anyone listening who may be thinking of actually selling uh, all or part of their business, what are some of the, the key factors that sellers should, keep, should be wary of or keep in mind uh, throughout the process? So from a seller's perspective, there's a couple of fundamental business uh, processes that tend to get overlooked. And I, I've built startups, so I understand how this happens. But really making sure that uh, you have a clean set of financials is really part number one. Um, and it just from a buyer's perspective, it takes a lot of the guesswork out. But you, you want to make sure you've got really clean financials. Uh, you want to make sure that those financials are up to date, that you can accurately generate a P&L. So if I'm a seller and I want to make sure that I can get the highest multiple for my business, I really need to set the foundation with strong financials. From the seller's perspective, it's often difficult to do that. But Templatic is probably the fourth acquisition that I've gone through where they weren't clean and that just creates some doubt and it makes the process longer. So Sellers that are looking to do that really start with clean financials, you know, throw that into QuickBooks or Zero or, or something and, and make sure all the all the numbers match up and they balance out. It's a lot of extra work. I get it, but it's it's really key. The second thing is really to start thinking about whether or not you want to be acquired by a strategic play or if you're just looking for someone who, uh, you know, to flip the business and then how you structure that is is different and your multiples are different. And the size of your business that you need to get to is a little bit different. And then really the third thing that often catches people unaware is making sure that you've got multiple responsibilities throughout your your business and you have a lot of cross-training. 
when there's only one person in the business that's responsible for sales or only one person that knows where all of the source code repositories are or only one person that does whatever job function, uh, buyers tend to kind of uh, steer a little bit away from that because it's going to take a while to figure out where all the uh, bodies are buried, for lack of a better term, inside of the assets. And um, if there's only one person that knows, then uh, the new buyer, again, it's another risk factor that you're just held hostage uh, to, you know, their whims and demands. And, and it's, you know, every interaction becomes a negotiation, whereas if two, three, four people know, there's a lot less risk in the transaction. And this is considering when you actually keep the same team or even if you decide to change the team completely and take over everything. Yeah, certainly. If you're gonna, if you're buying and, and changing out the team and letting everybody go, then then really the change or the the focus needs to be on processes and documentation. So, uh, and in our case with Templatic, that was done real well. Um, others are uh, that I've been involved in are not so great, but you know, making sure that customer service escalations are documented and where the source code is and your you're, you know, all of those things being well documented. Um, again, it's another thing that most people don't pay much attention to because you have, when you're running a business and you're in the day to day and you're the one that did it, uh, as a seller, you know all of those things, but as a buyer, they have no idea. All right. So, switching a bit to the buyer side, what uh, specific aspects are there which you should look out for before considering an acquisition? in addition to what we've said so far? Oh, that's a good question because we've talked about a lot of things. You know, certainly geography may be important to to some buyers, but from a buyer perspective, uh, you know, the inverse of what we talked about, which is the financials, the processes, how many issues are tied up with or how many processes are known by more than one person if you want to keep the team but I think that certainly traffic, web traffic, that's well documented all over the internet, but making sure that you don't have declining traffic. And the other thing that really buyers need to keep an eye out on has to do with intellectual property. You can get into a situation where you might acquire a business in the country you're buying it from. The IP laws are different than the country they're coming to. And that suddenly might open you up to some new litigation capabilities if you weren't paying attention to how that uh, source code or intellectual property came to be. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? The other thing I think that is, uh, well, I think it's important that you've got to ask ask yourself the question, what your goal is at the end of the day, because, you know, for example, if this is something that you're going to, that you're going to go into and you're looking to acquire a business because of the you know, the potential in, in a quick revenue flip, you know, that's one thing. Uh, but if you're looking to go in and acquire a business, uh, keep on employees and continue to run the business and try to grow it even more over a longer period of time, then I think there's definitely, you've got to pay attention to the cultural differences that could be there, especially in a, in a transaction such as this one. Um, you know, the, the Indian culture versus, you know, our, our Texas culture is quite different in a lot of ways. And uh, just like the laws are different than Anthony was talking about. So I think that's a, something to definitely keep in mind. There's a lot of work that goes into that, a lot of work that goes into the communication piece as well. So I think you, you just kind of have to ask yourself what you're, you know, what you're looking to get out of the acquisition and whether it's a short-term or long-term thing, and then 
ask yourself, you know, make sure you understand what that entails. Um, Because there are some challenges that come up that you may not even think about, right? Because uh, a lot of times we get caught up that not everybody thinks the same way we do. And uh, and it's, it's tough to not necessarily convince people to think the same way you do, but find a place that, you know, a place where everybody's comfortable. So when it comes to a flip, so when it comes to an actual acquisition where you're keeping the team on and so on, there's a lot of aspects which we've mentioned that you need to keep in mind. But if it's more of a flip, so the idea is you're acquiring a business at a certain price with the idea that, let's say, in two to six months, you can sell it for more. And are there any key differences between those two which you have to keep in mind, especially for the flip idea? Yeah, the, the flip idea is interesting, right? So there's a lot of investors out there that love to love to buy businesses, hold them, and flip them quickly. You know, I, I would say that if you're not going to keep the team, if these are smaller transactions where there's really not a team or you already have the team and you're going to bring it in, you know, certainly the financials are still in place. Dirty financials get you lower multiples. But I think that... Um, you know, really the traffic and making sure that it's something that when you flip, you don't want to flip for a lower price than what you paid for it. So I think in that case, the the deeper due diligence is really around what you think you're capable of doing um, and coming up with data that is not, uh, not filtered by confirmation bias, because a lot of buyers tend to go, yeah, I can make this better. And you'll tell yourself a lot of stories about why you can make it better. Um, and so you really need to make sure you've got the data to back that up. And it's not just yourself telling yourself a good story. I would also add timing. If you think you're going to flip something in three months, you know, just add six months to a year to that. I, I think it's always going to take a little bit longer. And, and, and even that's a guess, right? I, it's going to always take a little bit longer than, uh, than what you anticipated. Um, what, what's the main reason that that might happen? Well, I, th- I think there's a million reasons. You know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of things that before you purchase a company, like I said, that you, you may not necessarily know until you get into it. So I think there's some reasons there that just in the transition and, and uh, taking over of the company that would, you know, leave you working a little longer than you thought. The other thing is, I, I think that whenever you go into an acquisition like this or any acquisition with a business, it's there's always going to be in the in the negotiation period and you know when you're buying it or when you're selling it there's always going to be things that pop up that are unexpected and i think those things just it could be anything right it could be well there was a number off in the financials the financials weren't as clean as you thought they were like anthony had mentioned you know the buyer is looking at four or five different deals and it takes you know 3 weeks for him to get back to you and you know there's just a lot of things like that i think that I think that just the human element of it just causes a lot of uh, causes a lot of time. So I guess it's like pretty much everything else you work on, no matter how much you plan for it, it's never really going to take that amount of time. It's always going to take a little longer. I think that's totally true, right? That's just life. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think in a, in a flip, Mark, just to, to narrow in there, I mean, you've got to find a buyer, right? So if you buy something and three months later you want to flip it. That's a fantastic idea, uh, but you know now you've got to spend however long looking for a deal. You know I'm negotiating with a with another partner to buy something, and and she's been looking for a deal for about eight months, and we found something, and and that 
that particular item that the company she's buying has been on the market for over a year. And uh, it's a good solid business that she's looking to acquire. But the seller has been trying to sell it for over a year. And she was selling the business because uh, she started a new job. And so she uh, she thought she had 90 days to sell it before her new job uh, started. And so she put it on the market. And here we are over a year later now. Um, she still, we still haven't quite signed the docs. We're supposed to get this done next week, but she thought she'd be done in 90 days. And, and here she is almost a year and a half later. So, you know, lots of things can get in the way, just life. And I, I guess if you're looking towards a flip, once you actually acquire, it becomes almost a full-time job to actually set it on rather than improve the business or anything like that, right? Yeah, I would think that that's, you know, you're now in the marketing phase of how fast you can get this this project uh, flipped and turned over. And I think that changes a little bit if you're trying to buy two or three and, and merge them together. Uh, I actually had a conversation with a, a VC group yesterday about, you know, the, the funding required to put together seven, eight, nine small businesses, merge them into one and then flip them. You know, maybe that's a one-year process, maybe that's a six-month process, but it's definitely a uh, the the VC actually of the of the firm told me that's a go hard and fast and don't sleep for six months problem. So uh, you know, back to what Craig said, it's really all about what your goals are and making sure that you can hit those goals. Earlier, you mentioned one phrase which caught my attention. You said dirty financials would mean lower multiples. Aside from inconsistent financials or unclear ones and so on, what can actually hurt the valuation of a company? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you've got a, a couple of things, right? The, the current industry standard seems to be right around 3x your, your EBITDA for small companies. And certainly as you get bigger and you change into software, then those become multiples of your forward earnings and so forth. But Things that are going to lower your multiple on the, on the smaller deals, you know, something sub a million dollars in addition to your your dirty financials, you know, a lack of contracts and process. I think if you you know if you don't have contracts and you don't have process documented, and it's not a, a turnkey operation, meaning that when the seller hands the keys to the buyer, that they're not up and running within a couple of weeks. You know, every extra couple of days is going to be because of a lack of documentation or a lack of contracts is going to really bring down the multiple just a little bit. Those multiples and turns on the money uh, start adding up. Certainly, we've seen where not having the right tax information and and set up, um, ha- you know, certainly knocks down the financial valuation. And again, it's really a lot about the risk. From the buyer's side, right? It's it's all about how can you reduce the risk to zero for a, for an upcoming buyer, because every every added risk point, if you will, to the buyer is a reduction in the amount of money they're willing to spend on on the company. So they're kind of they're inverses on what what it takes to sell it versus what it takes to buy it. Yeah, I think that's probably the big stuff. All right, uh, we've covered quite a few different areas, going to quite a few different details. But to conclude, because uh, we're getting closer towards the end now, I'd like to hear from both of you, Craig and Anthony, where they have any interesting stories from your history with acquisitions, with your history with investments, um, any stories that could be a valuable lesson for our listeners 
who either may be looking into this uh, space as sellers or as buyers. Anthony? Yeah, I've been doing this plus or minus 15 years. And I think once you've done something that long, you start to accrue uh, stories that may be a little bit crazy or, or not. I think the thing that is always interesting is when the uh, when the asset purchase agreement crosses the seller's desk, that is when the uh, rubber meets the road, as we say here in the States. And, uh, and inevitably, about that point in time is when I'd say half the deals start to come unraveled and it starts to take a ton of communication back and forth. So I've seen uh, VC type deals completely come unraveled at that point where founders were ready to, to go on to the next step. And then uh, as soon as they realized they had to sign some paperwork and it was real, that's when it all kind of falls apart. That and, and the other place where it all starts to fall apart has to do with funding and making sure you've got the funding because not all of these deals get done with cash. Sometimes they become leverage buyouts. And I've seen a few where we were sure that we had the stroke to get it done with a bank or with a financial partner and thought we had a nice solid business. And, uh, and that financial partner just shot holes in our business plan right and left. And we left without a way to, to fund a deal which you know the seller never wants to hear about, but that's the reality of where those deals can can fall apart pretty quickly. And there's always a little humor in it, but usually there's a reason for that, so you can go on to the next one. But uh, yeah, I don't have a specific instance that would uh, that that would be an outstanding story. But uh, yeah, I guess they they all tend to fall apart towards the end, right? Yeah, they you know everybody's got good intentions when they start, right? It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like a car negotiation. You walk in to buy a car, everything is awesome on the front side, everything drives well, uh, and then you go sit down to go fill out a contract, and you're like, man, do I really want to buy this car? Um, that's a lot of money, and uh, <laughs> so it can fall apart pretty quickly. All right, guys, I think uh, we can wrap it up there. We've covered quite a few areas. First of all, I'd like to wish you well with Templatic and with any other investments you guys make. I hope we get to get to get to work together with Templatic as well through WP Mayor. So we look forward to that. Yeah, thanks for being with us. And where can people actually find uh, you guys and Templatic online? Yeah, they can. Uh, I mean, just templatic.com. Uh, you can find us from there. Craig and I are both on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Uh, just go search for Templatic. You'll find us. Great. All right. Uh, thank you both, and have a great weekend. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Mastermind.fm. If you liked what you heard in today's episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your feedback encourages us to keep producing the kind of content that you have come to rely on for your own entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the show, send it to us through our website or via email at podcast at Mastermind.fm or even connect with us on Twitter at Mastermind.fm. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a fantastic week.